The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. to Positive Talk Radio. We've got a great guest for you today, and it's a very timely guest as well. She's been on the show before. She's written the book, The Bullied Brain, and uh, she's an expert. She's a PhD in understanding the, uh, the brain and how it works and how it can be really negative in in some instances and can really cause a lot of problems and and because of the time of year it is it's august here in the great old united states and that means that people are going back to school and that opens up a whole new can of worms for stuff and so we wanted jennifer to come here and talk about her book the bullied brain and also about kids and bullying and going back to school jennifer how are you I'm great. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. I just want to make make sure everybody knows if you go to YouTube, she's been uh, downloaded quite a little bit and I hope it didn't hurt. Um, and she's, she's got a, uh, her book is doing very, very well. And it's very important that we talk about this because the brain, we don't talk about it nearly enough. And we talked about it the first time. And, and, uh, this, this time we were going to focus on bullying and kids and going back to school and all of that so uh it's it's a very important topic very important and you know my kids are older now but i had a just just so you know where i'm coming from my oldest boy had a port wine stain that, that goes from the middle of his forehead and encompasses his whole nose and so he spent his youth in school being bullied incessantly every day because he was rudolph the red-nosed reindeer he was and so i'm i'm familiar with with the bullying in that respect and it it has caused him a great deal of pain over his life and so i would like to help jennifer get the word out and make sure that uh other people don't necessarily have to go through that the same way so thank you for being here well, that's a horrible story. I mean, especially when you're a parent and you're seeing that your child is being hurt and you feel powerless to stop it is one of the worst feelings on the planet. And it's really unhealthy too, because the more you're made to feel powerless, the more unhealthy it is for your brain. It makes your brain struggle to process stress responses um, because it feels like it can't escape and it feels like it doesn't have power. And it's honestly a really negative uh, impact on the brain. So that's horrible for your son and horrible for you. But it's kind of a good kickoff conversation in a sense because it ties into what I'm hoping to achieve with my book and my work, which is I want to see parents and teachers and children start to become far more attuned and aware that whatever it is on our surface makes us unique. It's, it's a bit of a gift. It's, it's no one else has it. It's our total unique self. And you can always find something that you think is different about someone that can be a port wine stain. It can be their hair color. It can be what culture they come from or how they speak or their economic background. It can be anything. So Basically, I, I always react when people say, oh, I was bullied because, or my husband was bullied because when he was a child. Because the truth of it is, and this is really where I think we can change, the truth of it is the target doesn't have a problem. The target is a holistic being who comes to school or goes to sports or church or whatever, and wants to socially and emotionally engage with others. 
it's a holistic self who's interested in uh, learning, in problem solving, in relationships, in humor, all of these things. But that's not the bully. An individual who goes to school and strives to bully others actually has a lot of lack. They have an emptiness and they can't fill that emptiness without a target. So they actually are highly dependent on the target. They're not whole. Whatever's going on in their lives is serious enough that it's eradicated their sense of, of completeness and wholeness and, and even health, really. So we need to change the way we talk to kids and we get them to understand that when the bully begins, it you should feel instant as a child concern because it, it's waving a, ray, a red flag of uh, mental health issues. And you should also feel compassion because you're not that kid. And you should go and tell a teacher when that begins, that type of behavior, because the child is, is signaling, uh, it is an absolute cry for help. But we have such a backwards and broken system. We don't think about it from a brain point of view. We ignore our brains all the time. And, and just as a final quick thing, I, I want to just clarify I'm not actually, my PhD is not in brain science. My PhD is in comparative literature. So in a sense, that sounds far away from science, but it's not. Because what we do is uh, we're trained to take different discourses and we pull them out of their silos and we put them into an arena and we see what happens. So what I did was, and I, this is my this is my fourth academic book. What I did was I took this time, I took abuse, and I took bullying and I put like medicine, psychiatry, psychology and neuroscience into the arena to see if what we're told in society is accurate from a sort of a health and science perspective or if it's a, a false bill of goods. And what I found out was what we think about bullying, what's being hammered into our heads is a false bill of goods. When you put science in the arena with bullying and abuse, the entire conversation changes. How do we get the word out about that? Because you're right. When he, my son was growing up, um, and I knew every day when he went to school, and he would come back with stories about what was happening to him. And it was, and we talked to his teachers, and we talked to anybody we could. But there's no way to stop it. There's no way to. There's no way to protect him, um, for, other than to homeschool him, which would have not been the right answer for him either. Um, so how do we get people to understand, especially because you're right, the people that were bullying him were dysfunctional kids coming from dysfunctional families by and large. Um, and they felt less than because he was he was a big, strong, strapping young guy that happened to have a port wine stain on his nose. Other than that, he was athletic. He was strong and he was. So they, they used him as a way of knocking him down a peg to try and raise themselves up. Is that, does that happen? Is that, am I wrong, right in that? No, that's exactly what's happening. Absolutely. If you look at it from a brain point of view, so imagine the child in the dysfunctional home. And it could be anything. I mean, families have troubles, right? It could be financial. It could be a divorce. It can be there's abuse and in other words, you have intergenerational trauma, you know, an, a traumatized parent is acting out their own trauma with their kids. We know this. It's all very well documented. So the kid that's put in that situation at home is absolutely flooded with, um, well, flooded with cortisol. But before we get to that, what's happened is their system is activated. Their stress response system is on high alert. He, the child might have become hypervigilant. And so all of all of the brain power that should be going to creativity and friends and problem solving and curiosity and, and empathy and compassion, all of that has gotten channeled into a brain that is looking for the next attack. And so that, that child is in a situation at home where they cannot get release or relief. They can't calm their system down. They can't stop from being, um, very activated, which is pumping them full of cortisol, which is a, it's a healthy hor uh, stress hormone. If you are in a situation where you're faced with a predator, you need to pump it up. You've got to run away or you have to uh, fight the predator or you have to freeze. So the predator doesn't see you. I mean, we are 
animalistic human creatures and we are trained just like all the creatures that we live with on the planet we're trained to survive and so we have those same responses but if you're going to to a home where you're, that predator is there all the time and that predator can be divorce that predator can be poverty that predator can be abuse or even a sibling that's older and bigger and makes your life a hell it can be a number of things but your brain continually is pumping up this sympathetic nervous system. You're flooded with these hormones. You go to school and that's where you seek someone that you can do it to, to get it away from you. It's like you're, it's almost like an, a virus. You're trying to pass it on to someone else to get it out of your own system to get some relief. So you can, when you say dysfunction, it's this whole cycle. And I mean, I truly believe if we taught kids this, and we said to the kid in the in the home that's struggling, hey, when you get to school, that's your opportunity to find the right adults, the trusted adults who can help you and help your family if they have the information. This is a team effort. We're going to do what we can because to have a super unhealthy, unhappy, aggressive kid at school is only infecting other kids. It's like your son. It's not healthy. And in my son's case, the teachers, all of this is done kind of in secret. It's all on the playground. It's all in the place away from adults to where they, and they use that. And so it becomes, for for them, it becomes an outlet, I suppose. It's kind of a sick thing when you think about it, when you think about uh, uh, bullying somebody. Um, and, and But nobody would come to his aid either. Um, you know, when, so it's, it's a societal thing that we need to really understand a lot more about how to do it. But I was curious because being a bully, then basically what you're saying is your brain is wired to be a bully or it turns into that based upon what happens to them as they're going through the dysfunction they are. Is that right? Well, that's an, okay. So it's excellent that you put it that way, Kevin. So what happens is Every single child, their brain is born wired for empathy. The brain is born wired for empathy because human babies are utterly dependent on adults for many years, unlike other animals in the wild. And so if you don't have empathy as a baby and as a toddler and as a six-year-old, if you are not constantly registering what the powerful people in the room, namely the adults, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what they're intending, you, you might not survive. That is absolutely critical to your survival. So our brains are born wired for empathy. The fact that we have children at school and sports, wherever, who no longer have a natural, powerful, empathic neural network that is, that is working for them is really pretty tragic. And it means it's being dismantled. It means it's being hurt in some way. I mean, in some rare cases, it's the science, you know, would tell you that some people are born with that missing piece. It's extremely rare. In most cases, what's happened is the empathy neural networks have been damaged. So instead of getting that natural impulse to help and to care and so on, it's, it's missing. They're, they're referred to in the literature as callous unempathic. And just to remind the audience, um, empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone. You're like, oh, Kevin, I'm really sorry that you fell down the stairs. That's, I feel pity for you. That's awful. That's not empathy. Empathy is when I say, Kevin, you know what? I've had a kid be bullied. I have walked in your shoes. I know what that's like. And if I haven't actually had the experience, I can imagine it and I can feel it all through myself and especially in my brain, what it would be like to have my child treated like yours was. It's when you connect in that totally profound way that humans can do. It's one of our superpowers. And when you look at job uh, job descriptions and Forbes magazine and Business Insider, they're always saying that one of the key qualities to have in the workplace is empathy. It's if you understand what the customer wants, if you understand um, what your boss actually needs you to get done and you can cut through how he or she is saying it to get to the heart of the matter and then do it. Like it is one of the most important skills you can have in marketing, in leadership, you name it. So let's go back to this kid on the playground that's bullying your son. And you just described it in a really ominous way for me, because think of the abuser. Abusers, um, whether it's in the workplace, in the home, uh, in politics, 
They are the most adept people, and they're studied by the neuroscientists. They're the most adept people at manipulation. So they are really good at putting a face forward of I'm the nicest kid at the school and the most popular, the most um, talented at this, that and the other. I wouldn't hurt a fly and then cut to behind the scenes at the back of the school. That kid is targeting other kids for suffering. This is what you see when it's adults as well. So this child is already already imitating and mimicking what they know. And they probably have an adult in their life that does that. Behind the closed doors of the home, there's trouble. Things are not good. That person goes out the door to the workplace or into politics or the church or whatever, and they put on the face of goodness and benevolence. That split personality is a red flag of mental illness. And you're, you're seeing a kid on the playground displaying the early symptoms of this type of like really unhealthy brain dynamic. Yeah. They used to call that. Um, I don't know. I may be dating myself here, but they used to call that the Eddie Haskell syndrome. Um, are you familiar with uh, leave it to beaver? You know what? I never did watch it, but I have something that even predates that, that I'll share with you. Tell tell me Eddie Haskell. Eddie Haskell was a character on the show that when he was, talking to Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver or a teacher, he was sweet as pie. He was very nice. He was very uh, complimentary. And even the kids around him when in front of an adult, he was complimentary to the kids. He would help them. And then when the adults left, he became a complete excuse expression asshole um, because that was who he really was. And he was putting up a front. And so I used to call that the, the Eddie Haskell syndrome, the, the, the kids do that because they think that that's what they need to do, but that's not who they really are. Okay. So here I'm going to give you a, a curveball. Ah. From a brain point of view, I would suggest that a child that's behaving that way isn't really an asshole. What they've done from a brain point of view is dissociate. So imagine if you go home and you face the predator every day, one of the ways that your brain survives is it completely aligns with the aggressor. It identifies with the violent person, the powerful person, the person that's criticizing you, the person that doesn't speak to you and ignores you and acts like you're not worth their time. Um, your brain goes, okay, wow, you can't be in this victim position all this time or you're gonna self-destruct. You know what we're gonna do here? We are going to dissociate. You're going to cut that part of yourself off that's suffering, that victim, that quivering, that heartbroken, that afraid child. You can't afford to be that. We're not going to make it if you keep doing that. Let's align with the aggressor. And then what do you do? You take the aggressor to school. The aggressor acts out the power on less, lesser, smaller, maybe oftentimes it's more talented. You, you want what that kid has. I mean, I would argue the port stain thing that your son had was it just merely a oh this works I can I can I can tap that vulnerability for him but really I want his athleticism I want the fact that his dad and mom come to the school and fight for him I want his life maybe I can take it so that I can put my two broken selves together my my actually sweet loving self that I want to bring to the world but I can't afford to be that guy I've got to be the aggressor I'm not going to survive it is really fascinating to talk to you, I have to tell you, because we don't understand any of this, uh, by and large. When we, when we start talking about bullying and the reasons for it, and I've never heard it put the way you just put it, which is, which is really profound. Um, and it also, from what we talked about last time, it also changes the, the brain itself, doesn't it, over time? Well, I mean, that's that's one of the key things that I hadn't really thought about. And I was surprised when I found out it's and the kids don't know this. So, again, if we taught our kids, hey, you know, here's the bullying dynamic that you're probably going to face. It's pretty hard to avoid. It's all our, our society has normalized bullying. So you're going to encounter it because kids are imitating adults and adults are you don't like to say it, but the. The fact of it is, and the truth of it is, adults have created a bullying and abuse paradigm. We're all living in it. We grew up in it, and it's ongoing. We can see it in the highest political circles with the most prestige and power in our entire world. We watch them publicly bullying and are not held to account. 
all the way down to the playground. And you can just look at all the different steps in between sports, religion, uh, whatever. It's everywhere. Okay, so if we say to our kids, you know what, you're going to encounter this behavior, this phenomenon. Here's what you need to know. First of all, if a child is bullying another child or they're bullying you, that child is damaging their brain. That's how serious the behavior is. They are really harming their brain in serious ways and they should get instant intervention. They should have medical attention. The doctor should be assessing their brain and helping them put together a plan with their parents on how to get their brain back to organic brain health. Because if you did an EEG, if you did an assessment, you would find out that that brain is on track to really unhealthy ways. And it can be saved. It can be restored. Our brains are incredibly responsive to evidence-based practices. That's the most exciting part of the research. We are all empowered by what we do to change our brains to be as healthy as we want them to be and as high performing as we want them to be. So this is what I think we need to tell kids. We need to sit teachers and kids and everybody down and say, okay, look, if somebody demonstrates bullying behaviors, they're mentally and anatomically within their brain, there's things that are not healthy and well, we all have to work together to help them get better. Instead of saying to kids, oh, you're going to feel a lot of shame. You're going to feel a lot of fear. You need to go home and tell your parents. Why should you? Your brain's not in trouble. You're not bullying anybody. You're not showing big red flags of mental health issues. The kid that's bullying is. Shouldn't you help him? Her? Yes, you should. Yes, you should. Now, I want to ask you, too, um, if you are bullied like my son was, um, it also has negative um negative brain consequences too, doesn't it? Well, absolutely it does. So imagine your son, your son is having to go to school now and he's got to face the predator at school. So the predator that's causing him to feel shame or fear, feel threatened, feel less than, feel worthless, that predator is ramping up your son's sympathetic nervous system. This is what I mean when I say it's a virus, right? He catches the virus at home and he brings it to school. And then he infects other children. If he didn't have your son, he'd find someone else. He's looking for a target because he's not whole and he's not well. He wants to pass the virus on. Now your son's got it. So he, the the person that's the um, that's doing the bullying behaviors, you know, they're watching. It's it's almost like your son gets pulled into their psychological or their neuroscientific drama because they get to watch your son enact the role of victim, which is very reassuring for them because then they can feel once again that yes, indeed, they're aligned with the aggressor. So imagine this, and this research is in my book. British parents go to uh, some of the fanciest, most expensive, most prestigious schools in Britain. And it is full of remarkably abusive um, adults like just shocking stuff. You, you don't even want to read it. It's so unbelievable. It's like reading about residential schools. You're reading about the most mentally ill adults you've ever read, but this is the most expensive prestigious schools in Britain. This is all just being blown up and uncovered in the last 20 years. So imagine you, Kevin have gone through that school system. You were brutalized by your teachers physically, maybe sexually, definitely emotionally probably physically as well, lots of beatings. So now you're a dad. What do you think you're going to do with your son? I'm going to model the behavior that I was taught. And there's also a measure of power, it seems to me, that if you you can, you can uh, treat your son the way that they treated you because that's how you think it's supposed to be or some sick thing like that because it it really is a, a kind of a sick thing because like in my son's case two of the guys that were his worst abusers were a set of twins who were small and they felt inadequate because they were small and my they were like i so they i mean they were like 80 pounds or something. And, and so they were abused or they were bullied because they were small. So they turned it around and teamed up 
to bully my son who was bigger. So it's it really is a insidious thing, this bullying thing and how it how it works. And but the major thing is it affects your brain and and you have to learn how to recover from it. So my next question then is, Kevin, imagine that the teachers that brutalized you as a child, including pedophiles, are still at the prestigious school you went to. Where are you going to send your son? I would not send him there. Yes, you would. <laughs> I would? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's, that is just so sick. <laughs> well, okay, there's the key word. It is an illness. Yeah. There's a part of the body that's being damaged that's not making healthy, um, compassionate, empathic, decisions anymore and that part of the body is the brain you have a really hurt brain that would make you make a decision like putting your son back into the school system where you were abused you see it's a cycle you can in this moment people can understand intergenerational trauma right yeah. you do what was done to you because just as you said it sculpted your brain like if you looked at your brain growing up at a wonderful school and your brain growing up at a highly abusive school, your brain would look radically different. It would be shaped and anatomically and the way in which it functioned on an EEG, which is just a, a brain scan, it would be radically different. But we live in a society where we think the brain is just the brain. We don't know that. We don't think about it. We're not taught it. And so this is what I'm trying to like shine a spotlight on in my book is to say, we all have to learn this because it's a game changer for how we raise our kids, how we lead our lives, how we treat other people, and how we understand what's being done to us and how our brains gotten shaped. And the beautiful thing is we have the capacity to change our brain until the very last moment we're on the planet. So if you're listening to this going, you know what? I really want to address my, uh, the fact that I, I fly off the handle, I lose my temper. Can you do that? Absolutely you can. Just like you can change uh, your ability to play the violin if you put in daily practice. You can't right now and it sounds horrible to hear you on the violin, none of us want to hear it. Cut to six months of daily practice with a good coach we would all be enthralled with what you're playing on the violin. Same thing with emotional intelligence. It is something that you can sculpt and shape and build in your brain. Now, what is it? I, help me here, Jennifer, because what is it that when you grow up and say you're in an abusive relationship with your father at home and he's either distant or when he is there, he beats you or whatever it is, and you go and you go through all of this and you say to yourself as you're going through it when i grow up i'm never going to do anything like this to my kid because this is horrible for me to, what is it why is it that this gener intergenerational thing happens because it, it does it goes from the seven generation rule it goes from father to son to son to son to son where is it that we lose the ability to say I've had this happen to me. I'll be damned if I'm going to let it happen to my kid and I'm going to change. Why, what happens to our brain there? You know, in the neuroscience research, they would call that activation energy. So activation energy is when you do that. You, you say to yourself, you know what? I will not create the home I grew up in. I will, I, like I was abused by teachers but I did not take that into my relationship with students. Um, and you know, it's actually such a huge question. Let me give you a, a small understanding of it from my small point of view. I personally think the neuroscientists are gonna get more and more clear on what is activation energy? What is it that makes one person be able to make that change and another one struggle so hard? Um, and, you know, I think there's so many complex factors in it. Like one of them for me is I've been gifted and I was just lucky that it, it was something that I could do. I was gifted with a, an amazing education. Well, if I hadn't had all the studies that I've done in, in literature and psychology and literature and reading is one of the 
best ways on the planet to develop empathy, deep reading, like reading really hard stuff, reading about people who you don't relate to at all. And you can't even imagine reading. Like, so for me, I read all about the war and I read about um, what writers were saying about World War One and World War Two. Well, I have no experience with those things, but writers were able to bring me into that world, you know, in the same way that looking at great art or listening to music on a deep level. These are all things that open up our empathy and, and really fire up our empathy networks. So I'm lucky, I'm lucky that I have a lot of empathy. It's not because I'm better than or any of those things. So let me give you a statistic. I can't remember if we talked about this before, but it has always stuck with me. And I, I bring it out in these conversations because it's just a really fast, clear way of getting an understanding of what brains are doing and who is lucky and who's not. So um, I, I use the statistic in the introduction to my book to try to say, you know what, we have to stop talking about abusive behaviors and bullying behaviors as if they are a moral issue and the person that does them is bad. Because I think that it's, we're, we're much more likely to stop them and to change behavior and, and make victims safer and bullies get the help they need if we talk about it as a medical issue. So here is, here is are we going to talk about this next statistic I'm going to share with you as a moral thing or a medical thing? 70%, 70% of inmates in the California prison system were once in foster care. You know, so I had somebody who was a foster care advocate uh, on the show not too long ago, and that's the st st statistic that they quoted as well. In addition to that, she said 25%, only 25% graduate from high school, that are in, and there are 4.5 million kids in the foster care system, which is, I think, in this country is absolute crime. Um, well, you know, it goes to show you there's some kids that are given a really, really unlucky start in life. And it's hardly surprising that they end up behaving the way they do. So these are kids that end up being reactive. They end up being aggressive. They can't concentrate at school and, and graduate high school because why? Because their brain is hypervigilant. Their brain is, is a watchtower looking for the next blow. It's looking for the next criticism. It's watching out for the next humiliation or the next sexual assault because that's the life they lead. So they are not sitting in class like your son or my son and learning. They're not problem solving. They're not being creative. They're not doing social emotional connection with other kids. They are watching for the next threat to their survival. Oh, that's where their brain power goes. And, you know, there was a really interesting study in England that looked at um, it looked at the brains of people who have committed murder and their brains don't look like yours and mine. A, a murderer's brain, not always, but in the vast majority of cases has a very enlarged amygdala. And the amygdala is a part of the brain um, tasked with or involved with, the brain operates as a whole, but if we, for this conversation and for research purposes, if we wanna select out sort of a section, it's just easier to, to study and talk about. So the amygdala is the part of the brain that's referred to as the threat, threat response system or the alarm bells of the brain. It's the part of your brain that protects you from um, the next blow, the next violence, the next uh, threat or emotional attack or whatever it is, the next shaming moment. Um, and you know, you can imagine if someone's become a murderer and gone to jail in the UK, it's hardly surprising considering the life they probably led since childhood that has altered their brain to not be a high functioning brain like yours and mine because we didn't grow up with that kind of repeat trauma. Have you ever looked, have you ever thought about, and I, you know, I've thought about this whenever you hear about somebody committing murder or killing somebody, have you ever thought about what that would be like to, if you were put into that situation? I, I can't, it's in my, in my, I can't even fathom me killing someone by strangling them or doing, doing whatever people, some people do their brains have to be different than, than, than us because I can't, I can't even fathom it. And I know I, I doubt you can either what that, that whole, the, the whole dynamic would be there and, and watching somebody die that you're killing them. Hell, I can't even do that to a dog. I, you know, it's, it's like, 
I don't get it. And but it's got to be tied to the brain. Um, yeah. And is there a way that we can? And I know that they're they're looking at this, but is there a way down the road that we'll be able to look at someone's brain and say this is what they're predisposed to do, and this is how we can fix it? Absolutely. And in actual fact, well, I'm trying that. You know what? One of the most brilliant things, and he says brilliant things almost every time he speaks, Dr. Michael Merzenich said to me, I was in a meeting with him, and he's just to remind people, if you don't know him, look him up. He is one of the most awarded, most brilliant scientists alive today. He's an American. And uh, he he's the one that took my book under his wing. He wrote the foreword to it. He became passionately engaged in it, even though Every, everyone in the world wants to talk to him every day. He cares so much about children and he cares so much about changing society for the better that he dropped everything and he read my book and, um, and he checked everything to make sure it was, you know, scientifically perfection. So I feel very confident about the book because of that. But Dr. Michael Merzenich said to me, he said, you know, the key thing is, and what people need to understand is the brain doesn't lie. And he means very specifically on an EEG, on a brain scan, the brain is the brain. Now, can the brain lie in life and lie to itself and so on and so forth? Absolutely. We are highly adept at those kinds of things. But what he's talking about is on a brain scan. So, you know, think of political leaders. We put political leaders in in power over whole nations and they can make decisions about whether or not to invade another country or to bomb a nuclear power plant or you know this single individual has a huge amount of power well you would think in the 21st century considering the tools we have and the knowledge we have that no one would be allowed in that position of power without a, an esteemed council who assess their brain function and do an EEG to make sure that their brain is incredibly high functioning and has passed all the different tests it needs to pass. Just like we do with a car, you have to have certain things, you have to be able to see a certain way, you have to be able to have reflexes, you have to be able to have an intact memory and not suffer from dementia or epilepsy, or you can't drive a car. But we as a culture put these individuals with no brain checks on them at all in positions over war and nuclear power and economies and people's livelihoods. And honestly, when are we going to change? Because we have the knowledge. And we have the ability to do it. And we really we really should. Now, there would be, you know, um, uh, you know, personal um, issues as far as. Uh, in in personal in, or invasion of privacy, that's what I'm trying to say, and, and that kind of thing. But at the same time, we have when we when we nominate somebody to be uh, in public office at that height, we make sure that their blood pressure is good and the, and all of. So we do a physical check of them, but the brain has always gotten left out. Maybe it's because it's, we still don't, there's a lot we don't understand about the brain still, isn't there? Oh, there's, there's, the brain is so complex. There's a ton we don't understand, but we, we understand enough now. It's like when they discovered there was a correlation between smoking and cancer, uh, all kinds of things changed. Laws changed. Uh, companies were held. You, know, you couldn't get cigarettes, you know, until you were 18. Everybody had to see the marketing of the blackened lungs on the package and to better inform their decision. Everything changed. But we didn't know everything about cancer. The oncologists have been doing research on cancer and cancer treatment and, and what causes cancer. And it's multiple different things, not just smoking. But when they found out that there was a strong correlation between smoking and cancer, bang, things change and they changed effectively. I mean, certainly in North America, we've, we've gone from being a culture where uh, smoking was normalized to being a culture where it's not, you can't smoke in a plane, you can't smoke in a restaurant, your doctor doesn't smoke while well, he writes your prescription. I mean, it all changed, right? I mean, we both grew up with like smoking was the most normal thing in the world. Um, and it's not anymore. So another, uh, an, like, I would love people to think about this. We have enough research right now that if we did a check on every kid in grade six, we would be able to see, first of all, right away, who is coming from trauma at home. That would be very visible on the brain. And then we could do stuff to help that kid and help that family, right? Let's stop the intergenerational trauma. Let's get people the help they need. Okay, 
Grade six, we could also see which kids in adolescence were going down very dangerous, worrisome paths in terms of things like schizophrenia and bipolar, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. You can see that. And here's the most important part of this. You can see it and then you can stop it. If you put those kids, all of them, through daily brain training, this is all designed by neuroscientists, if they were doing their daily brain training and the teacher was monitoring and encouraging and helping and if a kid couldn't focus for the full 30 minutes online, you know, gamified training, that's okay. They could start with five minutes a day and they could build up to half an hour a day. But what you would be doing in your country is helping every single kid avoid mental health issues. You would be helping every single kid strengthen their brain. You would help all those kids become better athletes and you would help them uh, launch their careers in much more effective, useful, contributing, taxpaying ways. And you would keep a bunch of them out of the criminal justice system. So why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Now, Alison Roberts, she's a friend of the show and a, and a coach. Or we swing over and do everything different, trying to solve our past by vicariously living through our children. But that doesn't heal the trauma. And, and, and she's right. You know, I was thinking about that because I grew up in a household where my dad believed in the, in the um, idea that children should be seen and not heard. And if you questioned him, it was don't talk back, young man. And if you if you questioned him further, I ended up in my room. So I spent a great deal of time in my room because he didn't want to deal with me. So I grew. So as I was growing up, I was saying to myself, I'm not going to be that kind of a father. I'm going to be there for my kids and I'm going to do stuff. And so I became a cub master for my kids and a coach and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, the, the pendulum swang, swung, swang, swung, swung too far because then it was like, Dad, shut up. You're talking <laughs> too much. And my wife used to say this. She'd say, why do you bother talking to the kids so much? Why do you need them to just so, you know, and that created trauma of a different type. So, you know, I, I guess it's just it just continues. But I love the idea of do, I'm curious, why don't we do just as part of a physical why don't we do a brain scan so that we can see what's going on with our brain? Yeah, no, um, I just to a nod to Allison's uh, point she's making there. And you just described the phenomenon perfectly, Kevin, right? You overcompensate in your attempt, like all of us parents, you know, parents who are really struggling and, and end up hitting their kids or whatever. Everybody's trying to do their best. We're all navigating our own traumas. We're all trying to be in the present and cope with the past. And we all have to work so we don't have time to like really do the trauma healing. Like it's hard. I don't, I don't think that we can have lots of judgment about anybody. All we can do is try to keep learning and, and laugh at ourselves when we are overcompensating. And, you know, I mean, do what you're doing, Kevin, which is create a platform where people can talk and share ideas and think differently. But to go back to the, you know, Michael Merznick, I, I would do anything for the guy. And he's just honestly on a path towards launching the research project, longitudinal study. We're going to try and do it in Canada. And it would do exactly that. We get our kids' teeth checked. We get their eyes checked. We get their ears checked. They go to the doctor and they get their blood checked if there's something wrong but we never look at their brain and the brain is the center of everything. So if Michael gets his way, we will launch a, an eight year long study in Canada where, where grade sixes get their brain assessed. And then we show year after year after year in the research, how much healthier we can keep their brains. If we have them do brain training, it's pretty exciting. I mean, of course, nobody has stepped up with any funding, but anyone listening, if you've got <laughs> a few million, I'm, Give me a call. Yeah. Well, you know, it seems to me that uh, um, we could solve a whole bunch of problems. There was a guy that was from the North Northwest. His name was Ted Bundy. And he was a serial killer. And I'm willing to bet. And he was known in, in as it went through the trials and everything. He was known for somebody who had no sympathy, no he, and, he, and that would show up in the brain, I would think. Am I right in that? 
Absolutely. So here's interesting. And this, I mean, for people that are interested in this kind of research, it's in my book. But just to give you kind of the overview, um, you know, I t like with the kinds of questions you asked, Kevin, I was looking at like, what's going on in the brain of somebody who's a narcissist? What does a Machiavellian's brain look like? What does a psychopath's brain look like? And what the studies show, and of course, this isn't the answer to everything, and it's not a limited part and there's no complexity it's a complex issue of course but let's talk about what they see on brain scans and what they find is with people that are psychopaths for example if you and me if they put an image in front of us of um a dog uh, being killed by someone or a dog even just being hit by a car or a, a child being hurt you and i would have an immediate empathic response and it would light up in our brains they would see it on the brain scan. It would be like, yeah, the, you know, the, that part of the brain is on fire. Wow. They, they are emotionally reacting to this picture and you can't help yourself, right? You watch a movie and you, you're empathically connected to the character. The character suffers a, a death or something. You cry, right? You laugh along with the joy because you're deeply empathic and that shows in your brain. Well, if you put a narcissist or a psychopath, one of those individuals in front of these same very emotionally um, activating uh, images, they will process what's coming into their brain. It's not their fault, but they will process it as a cognitive, like an intellectual cognitive knowledge-based information and linguistic. So it bypasses the emotional part of the brain altogether. They don't feel anything, just as you said. Ted Bundy didn't feel anything. You're able, like you were saying, I couldn't kill someone or even a dog because my feelings would stop me from being able to do it. Right. I would feel so like I would be overwhelmed by emotion. Well, that's a missing piece for people that have either been so abused, they've lost that part of their brain. Um, or it's, it's maybe they were born with that part of their brain missing. That's pretty rare. You just in the course of this discussion, you just brought up something that, that I want, really want to ask you about because um, I think it has an impact or had an impact. You remember George Floyd, yes. the, the black man that was, had his, uh, that was killed by the police officer. And there was a film of that and it was nine minutes long. And there were people that watched that from beginning to end and then watched it again from me. Doesn't that, have a negative impact on our brain? That's a really good question. I mean, I guess it depends on why you're watching it again. If you're watching it again because you feel a powerful sense of injustice and you want to study it. So you want to see in the film, maybe what is the expression on the face of uh, the police officer, I'm blanking on his name that that brought about this death. Do you want? Oh, you don't. To you don't need to mention his name. He, he's he he had a, he, he the look on his face was of total apathy. Of, of the, this, the, the, what he was doing was not even to another human being, and it's just it's it was just frightening for me. But but then then that brings in. The, the next step then brings in when you watch something like that in your intention behind watching it will create. And so that takes us back to the spiritual side, which is intention is everything. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point because, you know, I, in my life, I tend to, I tend to be like you. I've got very heightened emotion and very heightened empathy. Um, and I'm privileged to have that. And you probably are too. Well, no, you had a pretty hard dad, but maybe you had a mom that kind of made up for it. But, you know, we, we both have like empathy is kind of very much alive in us. And um, one of the things that I find so fascinating in empathy, and you just described it with the police officer and George Floyd, the research shows, and this is um, research out of Harvard, the research shows that what is so terrible about empathy is that we can choose who we can have intention about who we offer it to. So if you've grown up in a very prejudiced uh, home, in a racist school, in a country that's constantly telling you, and there's a lot of very vocal people saying that 
Some people don't have the same value or rights as others, and it's dependent on what color they are. Like, really, um, what what happens to you is that you put that group in the out group. So the police officer might go home and be lovely with his wife and kids. He might have great friends. He might go to church and all these people are white. And so they're in his in-group in empathy, but people that are from other races are in the out-group and he has no empathy for them. Just as you described, his, his face is just, it's a blank. It's, there's, it's callous and empathic. Now, here's the thing that, this was so important to me because I was struggling to understand why when children are being abused and we've known since the 1980s that that child abuse like heinous child abuse is rampant okay it's normalized in our society it's rampant okay so why aren't we doing anything about it the 1980s passed then in the 1990s american doctors do a watershed research into the fact that uh, child abuse is correlated directly with chronic health illness with chronic illness sorry in midlife Okay, imagine how much that costs the system. It's shortened lifespan, it ruins people's lives, and it's a direct correlation. You're abused in childhood, chances of having a chronic illness are like through the roof for you. We still don't do anything. Cut to the 21st century, we've got 20 years of extensive neuroscientific documentation, research study that we basically ignore. It hasn't changed anything in the education system, hasn't changed the laws, hasn't changed policy. We just keep going along as if child abuse is a part of our lives. It will never change and we're never going to do anything about it. Well, I came up with this theory, which I leave with you. I think what happens to people when they get into positions of higher and higher power is they put children in the out group. And it goes back to what we talked about before, about what a bully is doing. They're dissociating. They're becoming two different selves. The self that's kind of their authentic self, who's sweet and kind and loving and wants to connect and then this other self that goes out and abuses so they're they're splitting in two they're a dr jekyll and a mr hyde and they this split self is very unhealthy and difficult to manage and it does a lot of damage so adults they they are so dissociated that as they get into positions of power they've cut off their child self they've cut off the vulnerable self the self that needs care and love and protection and they just consolidate power and power and power and so kids are in the outgroup so those that have power to protect them don't do it i think that's actually brilliant because i i think i think you're absolutely right that that we lose well, just just the um, uh, statistics in the United States of so many people that are in the uh, um, in the foster care system, and so many kids that are going to bed hungry every night, and you know it's one of those things where we wring our hands and we say, "Isn't that sad that so many people are are uh, their their food insecure, which means they don't have enough of that particular thing." And, and, oh, isn't that so bad that we've got um, 4 million kids in foster care? We really should do something about that. But then nobody ever does because it takes people like you to help us understand how the brain works that then and so that we can actually make changes in our societies to understand how all of this stuff works. And it's not, it's not a magical thing when you when to hear you explain it and to and to hear uh, dr michael explain it it's easier to understand and and but it affects us so mightily every every aspect of our lives our brain is attached to it yep so that's that's what the book is about it looks it's very much for the individual reader it's like how do you get your own brain better what kind of evidence-based practices can you do to have a healthy brain? And then it looks at the system. So I wanted to ask you then, because going, going complete round robin or complete circle, going back to my son, he, he grew up, he graduated from high school, he got a job. He's now a, uh, um, a diesel mechanic that, that specializes in some stuff. He's very well respected. He's still got this little child in him that says that he was bullied. How can I help him retrain his brain to get around that? That that's exactly what the book is about. So 
you know, with every single chapter where I point out the research on the brain and how it gets heard, every single chapter has an activation step. It's like, okay, now that we know this, what are we going to do about it? And then the last half of the book is just pure evidence-based. What do we do when we have what I call a mind bully? When you, you turn against yourself, you're harmful to yourself because you've internalized this really hurtful, traumatizing experience you had when you were younger or you had it right now in the workplace, etc. We, you know, going back to fight, flight and freeze, the fight person goes out, you know, arms up and, and it is in aggressive bullying behaviors. But the flight person or the freeze person is more likely like your son. It's like me. I internalize what was done to me. I'm, I'm not a big like aggress aggression person. So I just turned it against myself. So I dissociated. I had the high academic who was, you know, doing so well and, you know, passed my dissertation with distinction and, oh, my dissertation's getting published by Florida University Press, blah, blah. I had that persona. But when I came home, I was very self-destructive. I, I did self-harming. I had a terrible eating disorder. Like I was attacking myself, trying to get rid of the sympathetic nervous system like the bully does with another person. I was turning that against myself. And you see the split personality again, right? So, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but I'm hopeful. Like the book is packed full of, you know, answering that question. There's so many things we can actually do that the science shows is highly effective to getting our brains better and ousting that bully for good. And uh, Allison, who's a, a really, a really good quality coach, uh, parents become friends because trauma destroys boundaries. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's another one. I mean, just these comments from Allison strike me as just, they're just wonderful examples of the complexity of it all. But, you know, we got to start somewhere. So well, I start with the brain. I, I am going to ask you one. I, I've got, I have a friend, a close friend that grew up in a household that uh, um, father was distant. Um, she spent her entire life. Mother, mother was um, ill. Father was distant. Younger brothers that she was at 10 years old was required to cook dinner for and to keep them quiet so that dad didn't have to worry about stuff. Um, and you mentioned this, that the people that are abused in their childhood, uh, they, when they're in their midlife or afterwards, that they have chronic health issues that develop over time. Um, and she chased her father the, his entire life for his approval and never really got his approval, never really got something that she could hang her hat on and say. She even picked a different career she would have loved to have been a teacher, but she picked a, a career at the same company that he worked at because he she wanted to gain his approval. Well, now she's in her 60s and she's had 15 surgeries because she she ruined her body working so hard to try and make him to, to please him. And that's and, and that all goes goes back to the brain. And that happens to a lot of us. It really is. It really is pervasive. And and I, I got to tell you, Jennifer, I love having you here because I could I could spend hours and hours talking to you because, you know, when you when you put it the way that you do and in concert with what Allison has to say, it it really we really can make some changes in in the world. And we have the technology. We have the understanding. We have the coaches. We have the ability to get that done. And that's hopefully shows like this will help get the word out a little bit more so that people understand that it, we can make a change and it can be done. And thank you for writing the book and thank you for what you do. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. And I really hope your friend gets a fabulous mental health professional a coach in her life that, that galvanizes her, that activates that activation energy, makes her change, makes her realize that the only person she ever answers to is herself. She needs to approve of herself and really, you know, the hardworking mental health professionals who are so beleaguered right now, post COVID, they, they are wonder workers. But if you could bring to them a healthy organic brain, cause you've done your own work on it, that helps them do the kind of specialized work they need to do. It can also change your, uh, if you change your brain, you can change your physical 
nature of what's going on with you, can't you? I Absolutely. Think- like, as we've talked a number of times about the sympathetic uh, stress response, it doesn't just attack and damage the brain. It attacks and damages the body. Boy, I tell you. And uh, it's 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 tough because I, I think the older I get and the more people I talk to, the more I realize that everybody had some form or another of dysfunction in their childhood. Huh. And so we all have got damaged brains at one point or another um, that really need, we need to work with and need to understand. So I get, get the book, the bullied brain, you can pick it up just about anywhere. Um, and it's, it's, it's doing really well. It's a five star review book on Amazon. So um, it's, it's some, it's will help you. And then, and then you're right. Go get a coach or get two or get three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. It was really great to talk with you as always. I'm sure we'll jump back on again with the next event that comes up or idea we want to share. And it's just, it's lovely to speak with you. It's lovely to speak with you too. And I would love to talk about, since he's in the news right now, I'd love to talk about my favorite narcissist. Uh, <laughs> he's always in the news. We could <laughs> talk about that one day, but oh my goodness. Well, we wouldn't talk about him because I, I get an, I don't need any hate mail. <laughs> no. Um, so. no. But we need to talk about some of those things. But it's been a pleasure having you here. And I, I'm going to set myself aside so that you can tell our audience anything that you'd like them to know. Uh, those that are listening now and those that will be listening in the future. I just think the final thing to know for all of us, the most exciting, most inspiring, most empowering is that Our brains are innately designed for repair. They're innately designed for restoration. So all that's waiting is for us to get informed and then get to work on the the evidence-based practices that will bring our brains, you know, not just to organic brain health, but beyond. And this is why elite athletes use, like the top, top, top athletes use, um, the brain training and and these different types of techniques to keep their brains super high performing. It's a key part of what they do. And the rest of us can do it too. And the, I just find that really hopeful. Yeah, it's like, it's like uh, I don't know if you follow professional golfing at all. But what, probably not. You asked me this last time and put me on the spot and I had to tell everybody I don't follow professional golfing last time. <laughs> well, and because it used to be that it wasn't a thing. And everybody thought that that was kind of weird, but now visualization within the sports community is very, very big um, because before you can do it, you need to think about how you're going to do it. And if you can visualize yourself doing it successfully, your opportunities and your ability to do it is much better. That's why you see golfers before they they'll um, address the ball, they'll stand behind it and they'll look at, where the shot's going, how high it's going to be, how long it's going to be, and and they visualize it. So and then they create, they work to create what they visualized, and uh, that's that's part of training your brain, I would imagine. Um, brain research shows that when you do that, your brain is actually activating and firing up all your muscles as well. It it's like you are doing the exact movements and everything on a brain scan it shows and that's why when you rehearse it in your brain then you go do it your brain when it goes to do it says oh yeah i did this before so the brain doesn't really understand doesn't really attach whether it actually happened or whether you uh you uh visualized it happen to the brain it's the same either way yeah it's like this is why you have when you start to get mindful you have a lot more healthy control over how your brain is reacting because your brain can't see. So if you and I were sitting here and you were having an anxiety attack about public speaking, you would be communicating to your brain with all your bodily reactions, your increased heart rate, your blood pressure going up, you're starting to sweat a bit. Um, you might, uh, you know, be pumping more oxygenated blood into your brain, all these different things that happen. That's the sympathetic nervous system. If you're ramping it up with all of your feelings, about public speaking, your brain is like, there's a predator. There's a predator in the room. He's full of anxiety. I've got to make a plan. What are we going to do here? Are we going to fight? We're going to flee. And you're ramping up all this cortisol and adrenaline, but there's nowhere for it to go because really all you're doing is having a fit about public speaking. 
This is why we need to learn how to work with our brains and not against them. Next time that we, t- I, we, we have to do this again, because I've got no more questions now than I had in the beginning. So, <laughs> so, but I really appreciate you coming here and I want to honor your time. So uh, we've been talking with Jennifer Fraser and she has written the book, the bullied brain, go get it. And if you want to go to her website, how do they get to your website? It's bulliedbrain.com. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. Even I could do that. Bulliedbrain.com. Oh, very cool. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. And if you'll wait right there, I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to 